Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. So I'm going to start this week's episode with just a couple of accolades from my guest today, Deanna McCurdy. She has six national championships four Pan Am championships. She was fifth overall at ITU Cross Worlds. She has finished as the top American female and fourth overall twice at the Xterra World Championships. She is USA Triathlon's Off-Road Triathlete of the Year, let's see, in 2017, in 2018, and in 2021. And in 2019, she competed as a pro at age 45, placing second at Xterra Quebec and winning Xterra Fruta. Okay, (laughs) even if you don't know what any of that means or what any of those races are, you can certainly recognize a powerhouse when you hear those results. But, but... What makes Deanna's success story so incredible is that she didn't even start doing triathlon until 2009 after she had her second daughter. Deanna was actually a runner before she became a multi-sport athlete. Uh, Yes, so Deanna is also currently raising two teenage daughters now, which to me is an I could never do that moment unto itself, two teenage daughters. And one of them, Hayden, was diagnosed at an early age with Angelman's syndrome. Now, Angelman's syndrome is a rare neurogenetic disorder that affects approximately one in 15,000 people. So it's very rare. Only about 500,000 individuals worldwide have Angelman's syndrome. And symptoms include, but are not limited to, delayed developmental milestones, gross and fine motor impairment, difficulty with feeding and swallowing, Uh, loss of functional speech and seizures and epilepsy. And Hayden is nonverbal. She has some of these symptoms, not all of them. But as you'll hear, Deanna has dedicated every ounce of training and racing in honor of her daughter Hayden. She's one of the main reasons that she actually does race and train. And it's all in an effort to raise awareness and funds for a cure for this rare disorder. Uh, In fact, her most recent endeavor was truly epic. It was the Breck Epic, which is a six-day mountain bike race in the Breckenridge Mountains in Colorado. She and her partner crushed the race, uh, i.e. they they won. And uh, her fundraising goals continue. And today we talk about not just this incredible athletic journey, especially as a person who's in her late 40s, but more importantly, the joys and the difficulties and the realities and the gifts of raising a child with special needs. She speaks beautifully and candidly. So let's get right to it. Please welcome Deanna McCurdy. 
and I'm so glad, Deanna, that our mutual pal, Jeannie, yeah. connected the two of us because she and her husband, Charles, were blowing through Bend, Oregon last week on their way. They were in between doing the triple bypass bike ride <laughs> in Colorado, and then they were on their way to go do Hood to Coast, the the relay in Oregon. And rather than flying back to Texas, they decided to just come through Bend and hang out with us for a couple of days. And we were sitting there and I was telling her about this podcast and how what I love to do is shine a light on people who I think are doing amazing things that most of us would say, oh, I, I could never. And these are normal people. These are working people. They're not necessarily celebrities. And she said, I know the exact person that you need to chat with. I've got the perfect candidate. In fact, she just finished doing Breck Epic. And uh, I've only heard of the Breck Epic in the fact that there's a lot of lore around this six-day mountain bike race through the mountains of Colorado. So why don't we just start with that? Deanna, tell okay. me about the Breck Epic. <laughs> So yes, the Breck Epic is a six-day mountain bike stage race that is in Breckenridge, Colorado, elevation 10,000 feet in town. Um, each day, the race goes starts and ends in town or right around town, and you leave town and you instantly hop onto you know Rocky Mountain single track, and um, you do these loops that are anywhere from like. 30 to 40 plus miles each day. Um, so you cover a total of about 240 miles ish of, and about 40,000 feet of climbing over and, and descending. The climbing is the good part for me, but the descending can be kind of harrowing, um, you know, over the course of the six days. Wow. And where do you live? So I live in the uh, foothills just outside of Denver. Okay. Current. Okay. So you are, you, you have a little bit of acclimation to the altitude, which is certainly an advantage, but had you ever done anything like this before this multi-day stage race? I guess it's not really a stage race, but since you come Until back. this summer, I had never ridden my bike more than three days in a row <laughs> because my background was running in triathlon. So you're always training for three sports. And so to the cumulative fatigue and the just being more stationary on the body in that type of position in a bicycle was something I had to like learn to adapt and train to. And I think there's a bit of ADD in my brain that always worked well with triathlon because once you start getting bored with one, you move to the next discipline where this was, okay, I got to regear. I'm going to go biking again today, you know, and I've got to refigure out how to push my body hard another day. Yeah. And you actually raced on a female duo. Is that correct? Female team? Yes. Yes. And that was, um, again, another new thing for me. Um, you know, I've always, you know, triathlon, we, we know a lot of people or running events. We know a lot of people, but there's solo sport activities. So to have someone else that's your partner and the rules of the race are you're, you're supposed to stay within two minutes of each other. Well, ultimately, then you just stay together because you don't know if your partner's two minutes ahead, two minutes behind. You know, you're out in the woods. Yeah. So, um, you know, finding a person that has similar strengths and weaknesses as you. So one person's not waiting on the other and getting frustrated and, and the communication aspect of it um, was unique, but it was an absolute wonderful experience. I, my partner this year as is actually a neighbor of mine um, that for 
probably the past six years, we both lived in the same neighborhood and our neighborhood were so spoiled. And this is how I'm able to do all I can do with having kids, active children, um, is that we have like 40 something miles of trails right out our door. And so I never put my bike on a bike rack and have to drive somewhere and plan all of that. I just ride out the door and squeeze in, you know, workouts. Well, she does the same thing. She has two little children. And for, you know, the past five, six years, we didn't know each other, but we did. You know that lovely thing called Strava? Yes. <laughs> the blessing and the curse of Strava. Yes. We would, you know, we would compete against each other without even saying anything to each other, you know, like, oh, she would go and take a queen of the mountain of mine. I'm like, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to go take it back from her. And this went on, like, so this battle has been going on for like five, six years. And finally this past fall, I was like, this is so stupid, you know, like, why don't I just reach out to her? And because the only way I could was on Strava, I write her and say, hey, let's just meet up for a ride sometime. And it's, it, it was one of those things that, you know, females are just funny in general, at, oftentimes with this inherent comp petition we have with each other. And to kind of put that aside, it has, um, it's been a wonderful experience. Not only did we connect and decide we we're going to do the race together, we trained a lot together, you know, we've commiserated a lot together. And um, we've really grown from it. And I'm fortunate too. she has done race. I mean, she has a big, uh, big, vast experience base when it comes to stage racing, like she's done things like Cape Epic and La Ruta and across the pier or um, Port Trans Portugal. And so she has that background that I can rely on. And I'm just the type of person that I'm going to be stubborn and just hold on. Like I let her lead a lot of the race. And just because I knew I could hold on to her wheel, I'm like, I'm trusting her to set this pace. And I'm going to be stubborn enough to even if I'm hurting to hold on to that pace. So I'm not letting her down. And I think her personality was very similar with me. And it worked really great together. I, I I, I'm shaking my head in disbelief because it's so amazing that how the virtual strangers, neighbors, but virtual strangers for so many years, how enriching must that be now knowing that you have an ally and somebody who you didn't know, but when you came together for a common goal, you guys just worked together so well, it sounds. That's so great. It really was, you know, and I think because my up, and I'm sure we'll touch on this in, in, in later on down the podcast, but, you know, my training partner over these years mostly has been my husband and poor guy has been dragged along on so many hard training rides or, you know, crazy ideas and events that I come up with. Um, and, you know, so when you're that close to a person, though, you're not always the nicest to them in your time of struggle and grumpiness. And, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, so, so having her, like we, we are close, but we weren't that close that I think it was, it was almost like a work relationship. You know, it's a great, we have a friendship, but at the same time, we both kind of approached it as like, well, this is my job and we have a mutual respect for each other. And um, together, I really feel like we, we raced harder and faster than either of us would have been had we been solo teams. Um, that being said, she's she's in the 30 to 39 age group and I'm in the 42, 49 age group. So we had this other hidden agenda, secret goal, like, well, okay, we're racing as a team, but we both still want to beat the fastest times in our age groups each day, you know, as our own, like I like said, our little personal goals to go along. And and we did it, you know, we did it through the whole race. And I and our time would have finished us like third in the pro women's field. And and there was, I mean, some amazing pro women. So I really I, I've just learned so much about how women can really empower 
each other and and pull each other to great things through this experience. Yeah, I and mean, I love that there is competition and yet mutual respect. And I see that a lot. And I'm sure you're familiar too, as being a longtime triathlete, is that I I know that there are a lot of female triathletes, and that's just my wheelhouse of knowledge, but <laughs> they you know, I'm here in Bend and there are many pros here in Bend, especially female pros, Lindsay Corbin, Heather Jackson, Paula Finley. And these are women that are at the, the top of their game from a professional standpoint and they compete against each other. But I also see them on the roads together. I also see them at the pool together, really elevating each other. And then, of course, on race day, it's like all bets are off, but it's really a cool thing instead of being catty or instead of being, um, you know, I don't know, dismissive of the other person. Uh, it's great to see that, that you came together and, and made this happen. And it was <laughs> something that you never thought you could do, which is the theme of this show, which is, I could never do that. But I, I, I want to find out from you then. Okay. This was very, very, very technical mountain bike event, but I also know that you grew up a competitive runner. So how does one get from being a runner to not just a triathlete, but also a highly skilled, highly technical mountain biker? What, where, what, how does this happen? <laughs> well, it's, um, it all started with meeting a guy. Oh, <laughs> I was taking notes and you lost me at that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> In truth. So, and, and it involves like my husband, my husband and my relationship. So we've been married. Um, it'll be 20 years in two weeks. Okay. How we met though, we are, um, actually both from the same small town in Georgia, but he was up in the mountains of North Carolina doing an adventure race. And one of my coworkers, I didn't know what adventure racing was back then, but one of my coworkers was going up to volunteer and help support a team over a weekend. And she said, Hey, do you want to come along with me? I was like, sure. I had nothing better to do over the weekend. So I went up there, um, pretty much watched a lot of people disappear off into the woods, doing crazy things. And I ate a whole bunch of food like <laughs> throughout the day <laughs> because we're at the aid station. So I was just making my own, you know, my own, um, plates of food. So towards the end of the race, I thought, you know what I need it. Okay. Everybody else has been exercising hard all day. I need to do something. And so I went for a run and there was like this last stretch of this race was this eight mile trek down um, river in, they had to go in whitewater rafts to the finish line. And so I decided to run, there was a road paralleling it. And I ran along the road to the finish. And the funny story is there's this crazy guy that decides to stand up in his raft and yell up at me, the little runner running along the road. Um, if I wanted a real workout, I should be running up river instead of down river. And I'm like, what an idiot. Who is this guy? Why would he say something like this? Shouldn't he be focusing on racing? And why is he standing in a, you know, in a raft? But obviously the guy caught my attention. And so after the finish line, I walked up to him because I was like, he just looks so familiar. And so I asked him, I was like, are you from like our small town in Georgia? And he says, oh, yes, I am. Turns out, so we're from the same small town. You know, our parents were friends. Like we went to the same church growing up, but he was a few years older than me. So our paths never crossed. Meanwhile, like I said, I was just a runner. And so, but with adventure racing, the way the structure of a lot of these races are, you have to have at least one female on a team. So after the race, he was like, oh, so do you do anything else besides running? And I'm like, mm, 
no, <laughs> I run. Worst like, pickup line ever, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's yeah. like, do you want to? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, you know. And so next thing I know, he's throwing me on a mountain bike that's his size, not mine. I mean, I'm four, five foot two, so I take a really small frame. But I'm on his medium or large size mountain, spare mountain bike, um, instantly with clipless paddles on. And trying to ride through the woods at night because that was supposed to be training for adventure races. So needless to say, I crashed a lot <laughs> for about six months. I just, every time I rode, I crashed. I finally like crashed in like the first quarter mile of a ride one time in the fall. And I started crying and he's looking at me. He's like, why are you crying? And I'm like, cause mountain biking hurts. And he's like, well, mountain biking only hurts when you fall. I'm like, well, the two things are synonymous. If I bike, I fall. <laughs> yes, it's going to happen. Thank you very so much. I just got thrown into the fire because I was trying to be the cool girlfriend and trying to impress a guy. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how I kind of got into mountain biking. And then it's been funny how that we, the shift has occurred over the years. You know, I think my, my running background, my, my headstrong, determined background um, just kept me going at the biking. And while I still, I mean... I still go over the handlebars, you know, I think all of us do when we're starting to test new things. Um, but I got really strong, especially at the climbing, you know, and so now he's the one who's like, okay, you know, he knows he'll meet up with me at the top of a climb. And then I send him ahead on the descent and just try to kind of hold on for dear life. But uh, that's how, so that's how I got into what the, a great the biking story. Back. Yeah. What a great story. I, I, I relate a little bit, uh, to like the fact that you're small. Cause I'm five, one on a, tall day uh and like with heels and i am like amazed that you have this power to climb being you know a smaller person and do, do you think that that's because of your running background like where where are you getting those monster quads to climb or is it just like do you have a big aerobic engine because of all of that running i now i'm just yeah. being selfish and asking you questions on how can i get faster <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I think a lot has to do with strength to weight, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So, you know, it's if, you know, if I'm wearing, were to do a 20 minute FTP test on the bike, my power numbers are nothing to write home about. Like I don't tell people my power numbers because they're low, but you know, based on my weight, you know, it's kind of like, look at the Watts for kilogram though. That, that number is, makes things look a little nicer <laughs> for me. And, um, and that's where, you know, I think I have the, the climbing ability because one, I'm fortunate I have a pretty light bike. And so between a light bike and, um, and a lighter body that I, you know, and I mean, like I said, I, I, I love climbing because it, it sounds silly. It's that metaphor for life. It's, you know, it's hard. I mean, and it's going to be hard for everybody. And even if you back off your pace, it's still going to be hard. It's just going to take you longer to get to the top, you know? And so, but once you get to the top, I mean, there's always the reward. And out here in Colorado, I mean, coming from Georgia, you know, the longest hill I could ever find a train on was like a minute long, mm -hmm. maybe 30 seconds wow. where out here, I mean, I can climb a good hour, you know, just out the backyard. And so I can do a lot of that kind of training out here, but it is every time you get to the top, I still try to take it in even for a brief second, just to be in awe of here's where I started and look where I am now. I love that. And did the triathlon thing happen uh, as a result of this lovely new boyfriend slash future husband as well? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Like I said, he, over the years, he's, he's done triathlons. He's done a couple of road ones and um, off-road ones, but um, 
he does them because he thinks it sounds like a great idea at the time when I sign up. He's like, oh, sign me up. But it, does he want to train for him? No. no. <laughs> you know, and is he miserable during him? Most of the time. But um, no, I actually got into triathlon. So after, like I said, when we first met and first dated and first were married, we were doing adventure racing. And um, I mean, like, that was fun. Um, then we had our first daughter and um, she's now 17. And, you know, all of that kind of stuff we just put by the wayside. We didn't train for races. We trained for life. You know, we did running or squeezed in bike. Like we, we would do little bike dates, you know, get a babysitter. And, um, but it was really after our second daughter was born. And I know this is where kind of, we're going to lead into today. So our second daughter was born, um, in 2008 and she struggled initially, like we, she was home for the hospital for a week and then she stopped breathing at home and we ended up back in the hospital. We're in the pediatric ICU for 10 days um, because she was struggling to breathe on her own and they were doing all these tests and they finally just concluded that she had reflux that aspirated to her lungs and her lungs filled with fluid. Um, but, you know, for the next six months, we were battling um, pneumonia and just and constantly hooked up to all these monitors at home because she wouldn't sleep she i mean we would rotate he and i sleeping every you know two to three hours kind of like when somebody has a newborn and they're like oh yeah but after 12 weeks we settle down this didn't settle down i mean we went for two years of just you know completely sleepless nights and sleeping on rotating shifts um and you had a toddler as well and i had a yes as soon yeah she turned a three-year-old so that was yeah and you're trying to be like Oh, we, we still have balance in life and you're, you're walking around like a zombie, you know, and your kids, even the, the, the newborn was awake and lively during the day, even though she wasn't sleeping at night where the rest of us were, you know, struggling for a bit. Um, but, but because I had the older daughter, I noticed after around six months, like she would sit up but she wasn't motivated to try to begin crawling or moving towards things, you know, activities and toys. Um, and she wasn't babbling like normal, you know, six to 12 month olds, you know, she wasn't hitting those milestones. And I might not have recognized it as soon if I didn't have another child that had just gone through that stage of life. So at um, 12 months, we were fortunate. We had a, uh, I asked the pediatrician to have a physical therapist see her and come to the house. And the PT was like, you know, I think something, there's more going on here. And even though her doctor was like, oh, she just had a rough start. She's just development delayed. She'll catch up in time. And the PT was like, no, there's something more. So we finally got in to see a neurologist. And at 16 months old, she was diagnosed with a rare neurogenetic disorder called Angelman's syndrome. And um, Angelman's syndrome is... Um, it affects the 15th maternal chromosome. It, in most cases, it's not inherited. In her case, it's not. It's just one of these flukes of nature that when all the little cells came together, um, you know, you take your science class of your, you know, the father's paternal, you know, chromosomes and the mother's. And when they come and wrap together in their DNA helix, this little segment on the 15th chromosome flaked off. Mm. And so as it replicated across the whole board, you know, in her brain and her body, she's missing that segment. That segment, though, is responsible for affecting speech, movement, coordination, um, and learning. And so she, you know, has this diagnosis because she doesn't speak. She, it, she didn't take her first steps until she was three and a half. She um, has balance and coordination issues, developmental and cognitive delays. A sleep disorder, as we discovered, is characteristic of angel We just didn't know that at the time. Um, 
kids with Angelman syndrome also have seizures. Um, she has been very fortunate that she's on a seizure medication that has worked over the years and hasn't had breakthroughs. So, you know, we keep watching as she grows and develops, but knock on wood, we've been pretty fortunate where other, um, other children's with Angelman's really struggle with that. Um, but one thing, I mean, if you read all, like you go on, of course, as soon as you get that diagnosis, what do you do? You run to the internet, you get the Google search and you're like, oh my gosh, oh, you know, yeah. my life just changed. The the whole dreams I had for my family just vanished. This is not what I imagined. You know, how are we going to live with this? You kind of look at this like a life sentence. Um, but one interesting characteristic about not only my daughter, but across the spectrum of all kids with Angelman syndrome is they have these larger than life smiles they are happy. They, um, they love people. They love being engaged with other people. They pull them into the world, whether it's forcefully because they grab people's hair and pull them in, but they, um, they, they're full of this just love and life about them. So it's, um, it's definitely challenging. It's definitely different, but, um, you know, it, it is what it is. And, you know, it was hard. I mean, it was, it's always hard. It's, it doesn't change being hard. There's no book that tells you how to do this the right way. And, um, and it was definitely something I didn't think I was going to ever be prepared for. I didn't, you know, wasn't born going, oh, I'm going to be a nurturing mother of a child with special needs. You know, <laughs> Obviously right. my personality isn't like that. I mean, I love my children, but you know, I also am very driven. So speaking of the drive after that diagnosis, after a couple months of letting it settle in, I was like, okay, what can we do about it? You know, that's just how I think. I knew I'm not brilliant enough to figure out how to cure this thing, obviously, but what talents, what, what gifts and talents do I possess that can help me not only raise more awareness about this rare disorder, because the disorder only affects one in every 15,000 individuals, but what can I do then to help promote and create a change in the trajectory of our life and the lives of other families with individuals with Angelman syndrome? So long story around, that's really how I got into triathlon. Um, we, I, we, we've discovered this organization called the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics, or FAST. FAST, yes, yes. FAST, yes. What a and beautiful so, acronym, and, by the way. I love I that. I know. And, and oh, tell me, so the acronym is FAST, but can you repeat one more time? Okay. It's the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics, and it was founded um, by a group of parents who looked deep into the research and said, the research is there. This, this doesn't have to be this life or death sentence for our families. Look at what, what is out there in the scientific community. This, we, can, we can promote a change to this. We can ultimately figure out a way to get this thing cured, not only for our kids, but that will affect other rare neurogenetic disorders that are similar, different but similar in nature. It can also affect... Um, Alzheimer's, which long, I mean, when it comes to the research and developments, Alzheimer's, it's very, it's different, but similar to Angelman's in the fact that, you know, the, the brain and Alzheimer's, they believe, you know, is, is the um, neurotransmitter is slowing down and shutting down where ours isn't slowing. There's nothing degenerative about this process. It just doesn't exist or it exists in an odd fragment that's not working properly. So anyway, they formed, they formed fast and it was all volunteer all volunteer a board of directors. And they said, you know what, we're going to try to raise as much money as we can and get um, researchers on board, on board from universities. You know, the scientists who 
love science for the sake of science, not because they're supported by a big pharmaceutical company that's just going to kind of pay their salary and this is going to be their job. They ultimately want to figure this thing out because that's what they do. That's what they live for. And it became a passion project of a lot of um, a lot of these these unique researchers who um, the scientists who have just thrown themselves into it. And then they, it's what's so amazing is a lot of these scientists actually got to meet families and meet the kids. And now they saw, okay, here's what's happening in my little Petri dish, but this is how, the, this is how it affects. And I think it's motivated them even more over the years. And that's, so that's how fast started growing. Is it rare for these scientists to be running all of this research as opposed to the big pharmaceutical companies? It seems like that seems like a unique thing. It is a very neat thing. And I think that was very unique about FAST is that they not only organized, you know, there's so many other rare disorders that don't have that organization and that passion behind it to really push this science forward. And as they did that and as they and then and here's something even more rare, not only did each scientist, you know, in, in their lab, are they working independently, but they formed in, I believe it was 2013, this, they call it the FAST FIRE team. And they brought these researchers together and they shared research, which usually doesn't happen because they're like, you know, by the time somebody does his, his little aspect of research, say he's focusing on the seizure aspect and this person's fo focusing on the genetic aspect and this is person's focusing on long-term effects. By the time they do their research, then get it all through, you know, the, the cycles to get whatever research published. I mean, it's, it's a multi-year process. And then the other person finally can read the publishings, you know, and they're like, we're just losing years here. Let's bring you guys together from your different universities and your different labs and share information, you know, to, to help promote this goal. And it, it was an amazing. I mean, I just remember because we were, we were still a young family, you know, at that time, Hayden was probably five. And just to, to hear this, you're just like, I can't believe this is, this is a big investment that these people are willing to do. So that was 2013. It sounds incredible. And, and so that was 2013 and now we're in 20. So gosh, so nine years, nine years down the road, are you seeing the effects of that research in uh, any positive therapeutics that have come out of that? We, I think the biggest positive, so not only has the research been pushed forward, it's now caught the attention of the big pharma companies, you know, because it's one thing to do research and, and to figure out something, but then how do you bring it to implementation, not only to clinical trials and the multiple phases of clinical trials, getting it FDA approved, but then making it affordable. I mean, the reality is, you know, it's, it's great. There's some drugs to, that can fix certain conditions, but they're so crazy expensive. The general public would never be able to afford, you know, the, the treatments. And um, that's where, you know, big pharma companies coming in, they have, they have the financial backing to be able to push things to the next level. They also have the political connections to be able to push things to the next level. So we have had, we have been so fortunate in the past few years, not only to have a couple of big pharma companies coming on board and buying out the research, but now they're pushing human clinical trials. You know, we have gone from testing on mice, you know, doing genetic engineering on mice back in 2010 to show that a cure was possible. But unfortunately, you don't do genetic engineering on humans because you might end up with a third limb. You know? <laughs> right, but, right. So we went from there, you know, the mice model to the rat model to the pig model. I mean, I'm just in awe, like they created a pig with Angelman syndrome to the, you know, the 
the primate model. And now we're up to, I mean, just in the past year, there are three human clinical trials with, for, um, they're called ASOs, which are antisense oglionucleotides. And I know this, that's like whew, way over my head and the head of probably most, most listeners. Um, but these ASOs, what they do, and just in, in my understanding and in layman's terms is, you know, I said it was a missing little segment on the maternal 15th chromosome. Well, guess what? We all have a paternal side of that same chromosome. It's just dormant. I mean, we all come with it. We're wired with it. Well, that paternal side can do the same functions as the maternal side. It's just in a kiddo like my daughter, her body chose to turn it on that maternal side. So these ASOs or these antisense oglionucleotides um, have the ability to go in and ultimately activate the paternal side of the same gene. And by activating it, in theory, and what they are hoping is that then this will start producing that protein that affects the neurotransmitter in the brain. And ultimately, your body is then doing what it's supposed to be doing normally, just using the other side of that same chromosome. So that is so, it's so groundbreaking, and it's so exciting. And that's only, like I said, one of, there's actually three different avenues that they are working on to get, bring this, like I said, to human clinical trials, wow. which just fills you so much. I mean, we see, of course, I have to say, when we got the diagnosis, I remember having a, a you know, I'm, I would say I'm a, I'm a real faith-based person, kind of religious, but not overly, but, but God and I had a couple talks. Oh, <laughs> I bet you, I bet you had some quote unquote, come to Jesus talks. We did, you <laughs> yeah. know, and I told them, I was like, look, I think I can do this until she's about five, but then we start school and everything. And then, you know, we deal with, you know, feeding and potty and training and all of that. I'm like, and then I'm done, you know, so God, we got to speed this up. I now have a 14 year old. We still are dealing with the potty and diapering, you know, I'm cutting up her food into bite-sized pieces so I can feed her, you know, so we still are doing these type things at age 14 that we were doing at five, but, you know, focusing on that science, you're just like, wow. I mean, it's, it's, it really is a very cool time, I guess you could say, to have, this, have a genetic disorder and where the state of um, science is for not only for our kiddos, my kiddo, of course, is now getting on the older side and it will still affect her. But for those with the younger kids, like the future is just, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm understanding, if I can uh, dumb it down a little bit, mm -hmm. so it sounds like one of the therapies that they're working on, it, it would be, uh, would it come in like potentially like pill form or shot form or something, which would then activate that, you know, proactively activate that 15th chromosome on the, on the paternal side, which would ultimately get them to be doing the things that, that they can't be doing, which in effect becomes a cure. It, am I, I know, I know I'm way oversimplifying all of it, but that no. in is, it's nothing that you, it's nothing that you as a mom to be would take it, 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 you know, while you're pregnant to prohibit this from happening. This is something that, you know, it's a therapy that the child would have to take. Exactly. And and currently, like with the current clinical trials that are on, that are going on right now, it's through a lumbar puncture is how they are administering it. And it's not necessarily a one-time thing, but it's not one thing that you have to do daily, you know. Um, I mean, they're looking at other means and other methods, you know, whether it's um, there's this uh, a viral method 
um, where they, we all have dormant viruses in our body and they're able to, but the, the virus is able to cross the blood brain barrier. And so they can attach the, this is through gene therapy, which is a popular, very popular buzzword right now, word in the, the scientific community, all this gene therapy and how it's really positively affecting other uh, rare conditions. Um, but they can attach that missing little genetic material to that and it, give the body the virus, which the body's not going to fight the virus because we all have it just floating around in our mm -hmm. system. But that can go up to the brain, go into the brain, boom, and release that genetic material into the cells. And uh, that moves forward too, you know, and that would be a different method. I don't know exactly how they would administer that. You know, they're trying to, you know, work through those things. So, so yeah, it could be a one time, take this one thing, or it could be take a pill every day or, you know, or come back every six months. So there's so much hope and I can hear it in your voice. And I think that that is what has been driving you since you, you have started to do triathlon in 2009, when you, it sounds like you came to a point when you're like, okay, what, what can I do? You started to say this earlier, what gifts do I have? What talents do I have that will allow me to not just live a good life for you, but also raise awareness for Angelman syndrome and raise money and kind of get the word out that while this is a rare diagnosis, it can happen to anyone. It doesn't discriminate. And so is that how tri like triathlon became your uh, platform, so to speak, it sounds? Is, you know, when I was like trying to figure out, you know, what, what can I do? How can I affect this? Um, I read a quote and it says, when your passion aligns with your purpose, you are your most powerful. And that, that one saying kind of has stuck with me and has been how I've lived, I believe since then, you know, and I realized, you know, I have a passion, you know, I have a, I have a passion not only for health, fitness, and wellness, like I said, I was always a runner and then I got into other things, but I also have a passion, obviously, for my child, you know, and, and other children with this condition. And how can I bring and marry these two passions to find what my purpose is supposed to be? And you had, and I love the podcast when you had um, Ken Coleman. On mm, yes, yes, yeah. And he just talks about your purpose, you know, and the, you, how you and your individual uniqueness lies the opportunities for greatness. And that is so true. Like I, you know, I looked at here is what I can do. I've been fortunate. I was given this gift of running. I don't know why. I remember I, I didn't like running when I started running. <laughs> running was hard. You know, in high school, I dabbled in it. I, I ran track for a year. Then I didn't run for a year. Then I ran it again for a year. And then I ran cross country my senior year. I was also in the band. I mean, I was not just, you know, a runner. And I didn't like it, but I did it and I was successful doing it. And so then I was able to run at a small division one school in college. Um, again, didn't like it, but I looked at it as I get off campus on the weekend, I get free food and, <laughs> yeah. and, and I still in training. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. But it was after college. I was like, well, why do I keep running? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what else to do. So I, but I, and I, and I still, it wasn't until after having my daughter that I went, oh, okay, now I think I know why I have this gift and this ability. And um, not only was it with running, then I decided to take on triathlon because it was a challenge for me. And, you know, I looked at my daughter and every day in therapy, I mean, she worked so hard just to learn how to stand, you know, learn how to even swallow food. And I thought I need something. I mean, I, yes, I could go run a marathon, you know, but for me, it, 
it wouldn't be the challenge as like learning to swim. I mean, I grew up in Georgia. It, you you played in the water all summer because it was so hot and you know, there was nothing else you could do. But I never swam competitively. And I thought, you know, I need to challenge myself every day the way that she has to take on these challenges because I have the ability to do this. You know, she and a lot of other people don't have this ability, but I have this ability. Let's see what I can do with, with triathlon and use it as you know, I set my sights on my first half Ironman as my first fundraising goal. And then the half Ironman turned into setting my sights on an Ironman. And, um, and then we moved to Colorado. We actually did Ironman <laughs> Boulder, but this is how my brain works. You know, I live in Georgia at sea level in the humidity and train for an Ironman in Colorado, because why not add to the challenge? I mean, so, of course, of course, the, yes. like your both of your daughters, but you know, Hayden especially climbs mountains every day, virtual mountains yeah. every day. Yeah. So that's how, yeah, that. And then like two months later, I had an, a chance, chance, random call that my got, my husband got when we were out here. We always loved Colorado, but um, we were out here and it was a, about a job offer. And he looks at me and I'm about to do the race. Like two days later, I was like, yeah, we'll talk about this later. Let me finish my race. And I didn't know that in six weeks time, we'd be packing up our house in Georgia and moving out to Colorado um, and starting life out here. So how much I'm diverting a little bit, but I'm going back to something mm -hmm. you said earlier. You know, you had your you had your talks with God. You come to Jesus. H how important is faith to you in all of these chance happen happenings that that you have, uh, you know, that you've come across? Like, okay, I'll say like meeting your husband very randomly on a race course, but you guys happen to be from the same small town, and your families knew each other. Okay random or not? I don't know. Uh, and then here you are racing in Colorado and here's a chance to move to Colorado. I don't like, and, and then with particularly with Hayden, like where does faith come into all of this for you? I think if I didn't have a strong foundation in my faith, I wouldn't be getting out of bed in the morning, you know, because I have to believe that there's something bigger and there's a bigger reason behind why life has given me the life that I have versus the life I thought I was going to have, you know? Um, and I, and I look at people who have been incredibly successful in life and whether it's successful with careers or athleticism or, whatever. And it seems like they have all had to overcome some sort of a strong, severe adversity. You know, the most successful people didn't have their life handed to them on a silver platter. And underlying with so many of these, or all these people is a faith. And whether it's a faith in, as I want to call mine, God, or, you know, or Buddha or higher power, it seems like we all have to, we, we have to harness that belief that there is something greater and there's something greater that's propelling our life into these chance circumstances to align, to find our greater purpose in our current life, but also in the grand scheme of our legacy that we leave after we're gone. Mm, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I, I'm watching you and I'm listening and I feel very strongly that there is a massive faith component in it to give you this purpose and this drive. And not just that, but you just exude positivity. I like the fact that you just, I don't know, less than two weeks ago came off this grueling six day race, the, you know, like the, the, your 
your work, like your joy is in the work, it sounds to me, you know, like it is in that struggle. It is, you know, and I don't know if it's because I, I, I'm a glutton for punishment. I seek out that. You know? I, I love that. I thrive off of that. But I also like the six days. I was, I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, think about it. In the grand scheme of things, those were some of the easiest six days of my entire life. I mean, my whole job, I, I had to wake up, eat breakfast, go ride my bike for a couple hours. Sure, ride it hard, but just go ride my bike. Come home, put my feet up, recover, watch re- reality TV with my, you know, my teammate, and then get ready for the next day. I didn't have to. I didn't have children and getting them ready for school and lunches and making sure homework was done and make sure the laundry was done and the food because we prepped our food all ahead of time. So it was like, yes, it was hard, but at the same time, this was like the best vacation week of my life. Don't tell my family that. <laughs> it really was simple and easy, you know. And I think I appreciate, and that's one thing I have to say. With because of my daughter, I appreciate the struggle. I appreciate, you know, the as I have as I said before, that I don't have to do what I do. I get to do it. I get to put my, push myself so hard. I get to test my own limits because I have the ability to do that. And there are a lot of people, not just my daughter, but people, I mean, all over the world that don't have these opportunities to use their bodies the way I get to use my body. And I think because I've had her, I've learned to appreciate, appreciate what I can do. You know, and um, I also think before her, I had that attitude like, oh, someday I'll run a marathon. Oh, someday I'll do this, you know, or like you, you're running a race and it's hurting. And so you're like, oh, I'll just back off. I can try for a PR next time. Well, as I learned, life can just change overnight, dramatically, you know, whether it's for me or somebody else, you know, I mean, life just does that. It just, it, it throws curveballs at us all and takes these detours. And so when I have the opportunity to do something, I've learned just grab it and hold on to it and make the most of it because I might never get this opportunity again. I mean, I may never be able to have six days off to be able to go do a stage race, let alone train for something like that ever again. So I'm going to try to do the best I can do and leave it all out there. So I don't have any regrets, you know, and that's, I think, my message to my, like my oldest daughter, who is a junior in high school right now. And, um, you know, that's what I always tell her. I was like, just do something. I don't care if she comes in first, if she comes in last at whatever event she does. But if you gave your personal best and you pushed yourself and did the best you could do out there, at the end of the day, you're going to look back and go, hey, I'm glad I did that because I might not be doing that ever again. But I know I've done that. I can check that off the list and I can move on with the satisfaction that that was the best I could do. And that's what I could never do. That is all about it. It is about dissecting that and finding those qualities that are inherent in you and every other person that I've ever interviewed that uh, inspire them to get up every day and and do the hard work, regardless of what place you come in. Now, you just happen to come in first place in damn near everything that you do. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I and and I am saying that and I'm absolutely serious. Like you are, you know, an Xterra champion. You, you won, you and your partner won, uh, the Breck Epic. And you also said that it would have been like what third female pro. I mean, like if you were in that category, so it's, you're, you're not going out and 
lollygagging on these courses uh, just just to raise money and raise awareness. I mean, you are putting it all out there. Where where is why is that so important to you to just like give it everything that you've got on these race courses and stand on top of the podiums that you've stood on top of? That's a really good question. You know, I think it's just, is it, is it nurture? Is it nature? You know, was I, was I raised in a way that put this drive in me or is it just inherently in who I am? And, um, I think a hard, we, we tell my, my teenager, um, my oldest teenager, um, that her dad and I are always, we, we are blessed with some natural talents, but we were more blessed with a hard work ethic. Like I remember in high school, you know, they gave superlatives out, you know, and it's the best dress, the funniest, most popular. And I laugh because in two or next weekend, actually, I go to my 30th high school reunion. Yeah, I'm getting old. I was like 30. Oh my gosh. But I, you know, and so you go back through your high school yearbooks and stuff and you're like, and I got the award. I mean, we had like 400 people and something people in our classes. It was a pretty big high school. And my, I got the category hardest worker. And I remember hating wow. at the time. I'm like, I want to be the most, oh, most likely to succeed, you know, athletic, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, no, I got hardest worker. And now I realize I am grateful for that trait or that superlative, you know, from way back when, because it is right. You know, I just, I dig and I claw and, and to, to get to what I can do because I just, it's just part of who I am. And it's part of who I was, I guess, in high school, whether it was like, oh, I want to be the first chair in the band, or I want to make sure I'm up on the stage at graduation, you know, um, that it's just, it's just part of me. And I mean, maybe it's, I, we joke about it's that five foot two Napoleon complex. You know, I was not the first person picked for any sports team at all when it came to like kickball or flag frisbee or whatever, you know, um, it's pretty much near last, you know, (laughs) so I, maybe I always have something I have to prove. And, you know, this little person in me is like, you know, I don't care. I'm 48 years old right now. And yeah, some days 48 is not fun. You know, some days the joints hurt more than they're supposed to. Some days this recovery from this break epic is taking longer than my mind wants it to take. My body's just getting older, but I'm like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to let a 20 something year old show me up out there. They haven't been through the hard knocks and the life lessons that I have. I have what I might be lacking in talent. I'm going to make up for in grit, you know, and I'm going to, and I'm just going to be gritty and gutsy and I'm going to cross that finish line and go, you know what? I might not have won, but no one has worked harder than I did out there. Oh, yeah. Love it. I absolutely love that. Thank you. That is fantastic. I, I smiling ear to ear. Cause I resonate so hard with, with that. You know, I, I am never going to be the most talented person on any race course, but I also grew up in a household with four older brothers and I was the youngest and the only girl. And, and you're right. I don't know if it's nature or nurture on my gritty work ethic, but like, I'm going to get ugly on a race course if I have to. And I do want to put forth the best effort that I can, no matter how hard or long or short the race is. And let's be honest, some shorter races are way harder than the longer races. Uh, I'd rather do an Ironman any day than do like a full on sprint. (laughs) It's (laughs) completely different beasts. Are they not? (laughs) Yes. I think my, my best races um, have been the ones that have been in the ultimate worst conditions. 
you know, like, um, prime example, Xterra, Xterra Worlds has been, until this year, it's always been in Maui. And so I've gone and raced there five, six times. I can't even remember now. Um, and like, I, um, I can't, I've come in fourth overall in the whole amateur field twice. You know, that one step off the podium. Oh, before, I mean, like yes. not the age group. So yeah, you can win your age group, which is great. But overall, and so, you know, it's, it drove me for the next year. Same thing, a fourth place finish. You know, it's who, who just shows up. But the races, when I did that, the conditions were beyond horrible. You know, they had monsoon rains. We probably hiked with our bikes, with dragging them through mud for over an hour. You know, the swells in the ocean. And when you only swim two days a year in an ocean, and it's like these monster waves, and you're watching people get pummeled and just shoved into the ground. Those are the ones that, those are the races that I think you'll pass people out there and you'll hear them just swearing under their breath, breath, grumpy and all this. And you're like, sure, this is not what I trained for. I didn't train to carry my bike and push a broken bike up a mountain. But I look at them if I, when I'd be passing them and I'm like, yeah, I just beat you. You know what I mean? Not to be cocky, but it was the attitude. It was, okay, you're not happy right now. Guess what? I just won because I... I'm not going to let my attitude go to there because if I go to that dark place, I'm going to suffer through this and I'm going to like suffer more than you, but I'm going to like keep pushing myself. Um, and I think that's what, you know, again, it's part of that little drive that, you know, bring on. I always say that if the weather's looking kind of iffy for a race, I'm like, oh, just bring it. I'm like, come on, God, just bring this weather because I know other people are going to crumble. And I'm just, I don't want it either, but I'm going to like buckle down and get it done. Oh, what you know? a metaphor and, though for your life right now, because- you have to employ, I would imagine, an exuberant amount of patience uh, with both of your daughters. Um, I, I, I'm yeah, teenagers. I was going to say girls, seventeen-year-olds, <laughs> probably way harder than your fourteen-year-old at this point. But like, there, like, when you are in those moments where you would throw your bike off a cliff, and I can assure you, I would throw my bike off the cliff. I've heard about those epic days in in Maui. Uh, where you can't even ride your bike because there's so much mud in the derailleur and the crank that like the pedals won't turn. So you are mm -hmm. hiking your bike up and down these sloshy peanut buttery hills of dirt and mud. But that mindset that you're bringing to these events uh, that has to parallel the mindset that you have raising a daughter with special needs. Like you can't lose your shit on a daily basis. Maybe not. Maybe no, I do. <laughs> I have to. You know, <laughs> yeah. If you interviewed my husband next, he would tell you, oh boy, <laughs> there have been many, many, many a day. And usually on those days, he's like, just go for a run. I got just you. Go for a bike. Yeah. I Get out of the house. I mean, he's been, oh my gosh, talk about the saint in my life. You know, I mean, I couldn't do any of what I do because it, without him and it just takes a team to make this, make this work and make it functional. But, um, yeah, you're right. It's, um, I mean, there are, there are days that it's just, it's hard, you know, and, and I'm a I'm type person. I don't like, like, the prime example, the whole social media, you know, we paint the pretty picture of ourselves because if you put out there one day, Oh, you know, nobody wants to hear, Oh, I just cleaned a poop party in a room or whatever, you know, 
and or then you get the oh i'm so sorry oh god's you know gave only gives special needs kids to special people and i'm like oh crap he gives it to anybody like you know it's not <laughs> yeah. i'm not there's nothing special about me i promise you that yeah you know? yeah but um you know it is what it is but at the same time i could either lock myself up in my house and go what was me and sit on my couch all day and think oh life has just ditched all this literally crap on me or I can say, okay, this is my crap. This is what I deal with. There are people that have it way harder than we do. I mean, I am so fortunate where I get to live, what I get to do. My, you know, I have a wonderful, you know, small, my small little family unit here of the four of us, just great support that we and love that we have for each other. And there's a lot of people that don't have that. And so, um, you know, I look at that because there are those days, there are those weeks that are just rough and just those stay at times and seasons, but you just have to push through them because as we've all known, when we look back on our lives, we have those times and it, whether you have it in a race, I mean, we have those moments in a race, like you just said, in Ironman, I mean, Ironman is full of those moments or the ultra running races or, you know, where, where you just get into really dark places, but you can't stop. You can't quit. You just got to keep going and then you get through them. And it, you learn something on the other end of it. Tell me about Hayden. Like you, like <laughs> she just exudes so much joy in the photos that I've seen. And as you mentioned earlier, one of the, not symptom is not the right word, but but her the predisposition of kids and adults with Angelman syndrome is that they just exude joy and they smile a lot. Tell me about her. Well, um, so you are correct. You know, Hayden, Hayden, um, Hayden does love life. I, I think she gets obviously frustrated at the times. Like she has a little iPad mini and that has a, um, a program on it that serves as her talker. And so she can use that as her talking device. Um, most of the time she looks at it, oh, that's work I have to do. And she'll throw it across the room or whatever, you know, but, but she can communicate with it. Her favorite page on it is we have a whole page set up for Alexa and she loves bossing Alexa along, you know, like Alexa, play this music, Alexa, tell me a kid's joke, Alexa, how many days to Christmas? The kid loves Christmas or Alexa, when is my birthday? You know? And so she's constantly bossing Alexa around with this device. <laughs> Oh, and now my Alexa is talking. So that's hilarious. <laughs> They're always so, listening. They're always listening. So she has that, but then she does get frustrated because, you know, she fusses about something and we as parents might be able to figure it out, but sometimes you can't or at school, I can't figure it out. And she refuses to use her device to communicate that. And so she gets frustrated, I think, with her inability to communicate. That being said, she, she doesn't see life like a lot of people look at her or sometimes you get that sympathy look from people towards us. Like, oh, I mean, we go out to a restaurant and food is flying and she's trying to call across the table. And so, you know, and, um, and we're all huddled in one corner so we can eat our meals. So she's not grabbing for it, but, um, but she doesn't look at herself. She doesn't get frustrated with herself. Mm -hmm. Other, like I said, I think communication is her biggest frustration, but I don't think she, I think she thinks life is great. You know, she thinks school is awesome. I mean, school is like a party. You go, you get to see all your friends, you hang out, especially now you move from classroom to classroom and people pay attention to you. You know, I mean, does she study and sit in science class or math class and, and absorb, you know, algebra one? No, but she, <laughs> but she, Things. I mean, she is learning. She is definitely learning. She's a smart little, we would say she's like a smart little 
they, they call these kids with angelmans angels. Yeah. Just it's just yeah. you know, and there it has nothing to do with them being angels. It just this guy Harry Angelman decided to name the diagnosis in the 1960s. But we we joke where they're like they're li- really little devils in disguise <laughs> because kids are super super smart and they're super manipulative and they figure things out that other kids can't figure out. You know, and and so she is smart. And I tell them at school, I'm like, presume confidence. Just she knows what you're saying. She understands everything. She's sharp. Like you catch her, like watch it. We're watching TV and all of a sudden there's some sort of little sarcastic joke and she starts giggling and laughing. I'm like, she understands exactly. She's what's totally going on. getting it. Yes. Yeah. She's totally. And so she's it. all there, you know, and she, but she loves her life. You know, today it was before this, we had, um, kind of like special Olympics, they call it just adaptive, um, cross country race today. So of course my oldest daughter is cross country. I did cross country. So there was no way I was going to miss going to my youngest cross country race today. And it was at, you know, at this turf field and a baseball field. And she was with the walkers group. They had the little, they had the runners group because they're high schoolers. They had the wheelchair chair bound group and they had the walking group and she made it like they had to go from like around third base towards home. And then towards first base was the finish line. And she made it halfway and I'm like, Hey, she's doing good. And all of a sudden she spots her dad and dad is her favorite person in the world. Mom, eh, eh. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it got to realize it's teenage girls. I mean, they're going to love their dad, mom, whatever mom just, what does she do? You know, other than nag all the time. <laughs> yeah. She's, she, she, she embarrasses dad me. And she starts beelining for him and we're like, no, no, no. I'm like, dad, I'm like run to the finish. Oh my so, God. So she'll get going in the right direction. But she just had a blast just laughing. I mean, she's, she's not running cause she doesn't like both feet don't leave the ground at the same time when mm-hmm. like runners do. So it's, it's a walk, but was she feeling like, Oh, I can't do, I can't do the run thing. I can't do the full lap. Like, no, she's, she's not wired like us. Not because genetically she's not, I mean, but it's because she's like, yeah, I'll do this run thing. Cause it's social. And I see my friends and I'm having a good time and Oh, there's dad versus, Oh, I'm driven. And I want to get to the first to the finish line. Like right. the rest of the family might be driven. Right. And it's, Oh gosh, there's so many beautiful traits to take away from, from that. And, you know, just this lack of self-consciousness and being out there and being able to do something for the pure joy and the ability of doing it is something that is completely lost on, uh, able-bodied adult, <laughs> you know, I feel like there's that it, 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 we are held back so much by our fears and our insecurities of failing or coming in last or crashing our bikes or whatever. We can't swim. What, what, you know, insert excuse here. And I just love that the way you described her cross country is like, there's no excuses. Like this is a yeah, heck. Yeah. She's, she's going to round the bases and it might take her an hour, but she's going to do it. (laughs) That's so great. And so what would you want people to know about her and or Angelman syndrome? And how can people support you and your endeavors from a fundraising standpoint? Okay. So if, um, from the perspective, if you want to learn more about Angelman syndrome, just what it is from a genetic standpoint, from where is the science and research going. Um, like I said, our foundation fast has an amazing website and it's just quick and full of knowledge and little videos and, um, and the website, I know you'll put it probably on the podcast, mm-hmm. but it's www.cureangelman.org. Great. Super easy. Cureangelman.org. Um, And that's where, I mean, like I said, that's where, that's where I go when I, um, when I, when I need to pick me up, 
like my pick me up is honestly, I go and I'm like, read a little bit of science. And I'm like, okay, you know, and fast, big, our big motto and philosophy this year and our little hashtag on so many things is better days are coming because that's, that's our belief, you know, and when you have a, if you believe in something strongly, you know, you believe it and you can will it and will it happen? Maybe, maybe not. But if you keep pushing for it and doing the hard work to get there, it's, you might not get to exactly, we might not get to this 100%. Oh, these kids are completely cured, but we're on the right path and we're better than where we started. You know, it's what they say, shoot for the stars. And if you land on the moon, Hey, you're on the moon at the end of the day. So um, that that's what fills me with hope for the future for her and for other individuals and families with Angelman's and families with other rare disorders that are, you know, struggling on a daily basis. Um, from a fundraising standpoint, uh, the FAST website also has these, they call them CAN fundraising pages or Cure Angelman Now is what CAN stands for. And um, we have our own, I, I have my link to my current fundraising page and it's an epic climb for an epic cure because that's what we were doing this year, climbing those mountains out in Breckenridge. And that, that campaign is still open. It opens, it stays open until the end of October. And that's where um, on that can page of our family is where people can donate. Um, and you see Hayden's, Hayden's cute picture on the, the cover of it. It also has a link to my Strava. And so if anybody wants to like stalk my Strava <laughs> and what is she, what crazy things is she doing? Gonna snag a, snag a QOM right out from underneath you. <laughs> oh, and that has happened, you know, not that I'm competitive towards, towards all those things. Or my coach sometimes is like, oh, Strava. And I'm like, I can't help it. Some days you're just going to turn it off because, you know, I'm not going to take an easy ride easy if I know where a segment is. Oh so I'm like, gosh. I'm so glad I haven't <laughs> dug so deep into Strava. Like I, <laughs> I have things that upload to Strava, but I don't, yeah, I'm not out chasing segments and I like, no. that's, I should not, I should not do that's, that. That's healthy to not yes. be like that. You know, um, one thing though, I do have my Strava and, and most days I'll post a picture like Strava is kind of almost my social media a lot of times, mm -hmm. you know, and in my, you know, in the older crowd, cause I don't know anything about TikTok or any of that stuff, you know? So, um, but I also, because I want to keep reminding myself of the blessings of where I get to live and what I get to do that when I go out, I will stop at some point and take a picture or like, say I'm doing crazy hill repeats, you know, oh, you're doing how many, you know, five by eight minute hill repeats or something. At the end, I always tell myself my reward after my eighth one is turn around and take a picture. And that's my, I give this, it's like that's my little great. pat in the back. This is my reward. And then I tag, put it onto my Strava, you know, for the day. Cause then I want to always go back and remember, oh, I remember that day. That was the day that the sunrise was amazing coming up at the end of my workout or, you know, oh, that was the day that the wildflowers were in full bloom. And so I want to make sure that it's not, it's part of, like you said, it's that journey. It's that process of, you know, it's not just the end result, the finish line. It's like, no, take joy in that suffering and the journey and in awe and be in awe of really the life you get to have. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't say it or end it any better. Do you, aside from Strava, do you have an Instagram handle? I do. Yep. And it's just, um, I think it's actually <laughs> like, what is it? You know, I can <laughs> click on it. Um, I believe it's Deanna McCurdy. Okay. Let's see. Yes. Or, um, well, I'm Deanna McCurdy, but the Instagram is D-E-E -E McCurdy. Okay. So D McCurdy. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll so yeah. definitely my link to My profile that. picture is my muddy face from Breck Epic. You'll be able to see that. Thanks to Eddie Clark Media who took pictures of everybody at the, at the end of the first day. That's great. That's become our, my, my fun reminder. Well, this has been such a joy and I, I just want to end it with one 
final big question. And I, I know that there are a lot of people that say I could never raise a child with special needs or uh, even as a mom, like I could never succeed in sport or never do something as big and wild as exterior world championships or the Breck Epic or, or whatever uh, event that you're doing, but you're doing it and you're doing all of it. And somehow you're managing with two teenage girls and finding time to train. Um, what's your advice for people that have or have not ever come to you and said, I don't know how you do it. I could never do it. I think it all boils down to believing, you know, if you believe in, you know, a lot of times we struggle believing in ourselves and talk about raising a teenage daughter <laughs> who's 17, who, you know, I mean, all teenage girls, they struggle with that. And we all struggle with that. And it probably started from, you can blame it on our parents or previous generations, but, you know, it was finding that belief in myself that I'm important and I have gifts and I have talents and I, I again, have this bigger purpose in my life. And if I believe in myself, even if it's this tiny little speck of belief, that, that speck can keep growing and growing if I keep putting my foot out there and keep trying to make these goals or set, getting myself out the door on the day I don't want to. And that belief is going to keep driving me to the idea that, as we said, these better days are coming, you know, in the future for, for everything. And just to kind of just believe, believe that it's the sun's going to come up tomorrow, you know. As Annie would sing, the sun will come yes. out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's, it's true. There's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of suffering in, in life and in the world. And goodness, over the past few years, isn't that the truth, right? Um, and we actually, with FAST, I started this year, it's called this FAST Athletes Can uh, arrangements because there are a couple of really amazing, unique parents who are also these incredibly, uh, incredible athletes in different disciplines. And, you know, it's like, what, what can we do as, as athletes that, and, and share with other people that, Hey, we've got the struggles on a daily basis. We have our families and, and, you know, we try to find the balance of our family and we're trying to help our kids with the special needs through therapies and doctor appointments. And, but we also keep living, you know, and if we can be that light for others and show them that get off the couch, put the shoes on, get out the door. You're not only going to do something for yourself, but you're going to be a better person for your family and, and for the long haul of, of life. Thank you, Deanna. Fast athletes can and will bring a cure for Angelman syndrome. Keep pedaling away out there, my friend, and we'll all be following along. I've put links to many of the resources we discussed in the show notes, including Deanna's Breck Epic fundraising page. And as I said earlier, it's not too late to make a donation. Thanks for listening and supporting independent podcasts like this one. You can support this podcast through the app Buy Me a Coffee, and I'll link that up in the show notes as well. Never underestimate the ability to use your gifts for good. Thanks, Deanna, and thank you for listening.